Romans 4.13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, what happens? Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed God, that is, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who, talking about Abraham again, contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because or account of our offenses and was raised because of our, or in order for our justification. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. Thank you, God, that it speaks to all of us today. It wasn't just written for Abraham's sake alone. It was written for us. So, God, I pray that you'll help us to understand it so that we might apply it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God is a treasured book. It is a book that demands our study. It demands that we take it serious and that when we understand God's revelation, then we can apply. God always reveals, and that's what man is to respond to. And Abraham's faith was not in a vacuum. His faith was based on a revelation from God. It was propositional promises that Abraham had to trust in. I'm afraid that a lot of evangelism that we're seeing today is not justification by faith based on revelation. It's justification by ignorance. What I mean by that is that it is never fully explained that Jesus Christ is exclusively the only way to God. When Oprah Winfrey can sit on a talk show and talk with Joel Osteen, and both of them confess that they are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, that is 
justification by ignorance because that's not an understanding of who the biblical Jesus is. The biblical Jesus is exclusive. You can't add Jesus on to something else. It's not Jesus plus or Jesus minus. It is Jesus alone. He alone saves. And Abraham understood that it was only God and his promises that he could trust in. He couldn't trust in anything else. So let's just begin to to look at this text. Three simple points for us this morning. The first point is that righteousness that God gives you and I is based on his promises, based on nothing else, that God's promises are reliable, that God's promises are trustworthy. You and I have a book that has been inspired, that is God-breathed, and we have a record of revelation that we can trust, that we can put our confidence in. We have promises from God that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a promise from God. And it's the promises that save us. It is God's character that we're to trust in. Not anything that we do. Notice that, it is that Abraham, he's not heir of the world and his seed through law. It's not through anything that Abraham could achieve. Nothing that Abraham could accomplish. It was all based on a promise. And this promise was staggering. Look at the promise. And I think this is the only place where it's ever described as this, but it's a very, very adequate description of the promise. And the Holy Spirit had Paul write this for a reason, that he was the heir, the heir of the world. What a staggering promise. This is not easy believism that Abraham trusted in. Abraham was going to be the heir of the world. Now, there was four parts of this promise that implied that Abraham was going to be the heir of the world. Now, mainly the heir of the world is Genesis 12, 3, and the last part of that, that through your seed... All the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's what Paul is alluding to here, but that promise had three other parts to it, and one was the promise of the land. God instructed Abraham to walk through the breadth of the land, to lift up his eyes to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. And he said, Abraham, all of this land I'm going to give to your descendants. Now that's a staggering promise. That's not easy to believe, is it? I mean, this man who was a wanderer, that's what the word Hebrew means. It's one who's wandering, one who's crossing over. He has no possession. He's dwelling in tents. And he says, all of this land is going to be yours. He left Mesopotamia, a prosperous area, and God places him in the middle of nowhere, well, between two great empires for a purpose. We don't have time to talk about that this morning. But this land is yours. And then God specifically says later on to Abraham in chapter 17, your land is going to be from the great river Egypt all the way to the Euphrates. That's, isn't that amazing? I think we forget that a lot of times. We think of Israel as this little tiny speck on the map, but all of that land was deeded to Abraham. And the only time politically that they ever expanded that far was under King David and under Solomon. And even then it was simply a taxation of those people. And this is one of the reasons why I do believe in a Literal kingdom for Israel. Because all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And the second part of this promise is that 
you will be a great nation. This is an unbelievable promise. You're going to be a great nation. He has no offspring. He has no ability to bear children with Sarah and to be told you are going to be a great nation. This has nothing to do with the law. This is all based on the promise of God. In fact, the law didn't come for five centuries, and that is Paul's point. Abraham was considered and imputed righteous before circumcision ever was a part of God's economy. Abraham wasn't circumcised until 13 or 14 years after the promise that he was going to be blessed with a nation. This was 400 years before the law, and that's Paul's point as he's driving this home to his Jewish listeners. A third part of this blessing is that he would be a blessing to mankind, that his descendants... And you think about how God did that throughout his faithfulness to his promise. We're studying the life of Joseph with our men. And you think about how his descendants were a blessing to all nations. Joseph there in prison is brought out by Pharaoh. He describes the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And it didn't just save Egypt. It saved all the nations around because God said, I'm going to bless my seed. I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to bless your nation and they will be a blessing. You think about Daniel. How did God keep that, keep that promise? Nebuchadnezzar comes and he destroys all of the empires around him. And God sends little old Daniel, a teenager. And Daniel is able to interpret the dreams of the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 4, Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you are so puffed up with pride. You need to humble yourself. He says, you need to change. You need to, to see that God alone is righteous and you need to treat the poor in your country with equity and justice and kindness. And one day Nebuchadnezzar walks out on his balcony and he looks at all of his kingdom and he says, look what I have accomplished. At that minute, Nebuchadnezzar's mind changed. And for seven years, he ate grass like an oxen. The dew wetted his hair that just grew out, his fingernails they didn't trim. And at the end of those seven years, he looks up and God reveals himself. And Nebuchadnezzar confesses it's the God who created heaven and earth. He rules everywhere. And the Babylonian Empire that spanned all the way from the Euphrates all the way to Egypt, that was the land that God had promised. Now all of these nations knew the God of Daniel, the God of the Hebrews was the great and true God. You think about Esther, the Persian Empire, and what a blessing she was, God's descendants wherever they went. God's promises. That is what our faith is based on. And our God is trustworthy and our God is faithful. But the fourth part of this promise was in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was a promise of the Messiah. That's Jesus right there in seed form. In fact, Paul takes that seed word in the book of Galatians. He says, notice that he didn't say seeds, but he said seed, that is singular, and that seed was Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it's only a man's covenant Yet if it's confirmed, no man disannuls it or adds thereto. That's old English, so let me kind of just give you an illustration. Once you sign a deed and you're renting from somebody and you've got the down payment and you've got all of your responsibilities and the landlord's got all of his responsibilities and that thing has been signed, the landlord can't come back and say, hey, you know what, I said in that document and you signed and I signed that... I was going to be responsible for all the utilities, but we're not going to work that way. You're going to take care of the, the utilities. And you say, uh-uh, nope. 
We have signed a contract. You can't annul it. You can't add anything to it. And that's what Paul's, he says, that's just a man's covenant. Now let's extrapolate that to when God makes a promise to you and I. God is not going to slip something in under small print that you didn't see. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) So the rest of this verse says that you cannot add thereto, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says, not unto seeds as many, but as one and that seed which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance of the law, it is no more promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So this morning, you can know that you are justified because God has promised it. He has promised whoever believes in Jesus is accounted as righteous. So how does God deal with Abraham? It's the same way that God deals with you and I. It is through a promise. Now, what are the consequences if it's not a promise? The first consequence is found in verse 14. Let's read that together. The first consequence, if it's not a promise, if it's law, if if it's something other than faith, for if those who are of the law are heirs, what happens to faith then? Faith is made void. Law and faith are mutually exclusive. You can't mix the two. The next effect, the next effect is no effect. (laughs) Look at the rest of this verse. And the promises is made of no effect. So by the law, by trying to keep the law, you and I can receive absolutely nothing. I will receive nothing from God based on my good works or my merit as far as salvation is concerned. In fact, the Christian life has to be lived out the same way. Genesis, I mean Galatians... Romans, excuse me, Romans 1.17 says, Herein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith. That's how we begin the Christian life. And we walk the Christian life by faith. For the just shall live by faith. We are not under law. Does that mean we're free to sin? May it never be. Don't get that confused either. So let's continue to, to look at this. All the things that are written in the book of the law can only bring you and I a curse. James 2.10 is very clear. If we kept all the law and yet we break it in one offense, we're guilty of all of it. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who we proclaim among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, Paul wrote, was not yes and no, but in Christ Jesus was yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen and to God be the glory. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Regardless, the word made no effect. Katargeo. It means really, literally, to render something with to useless. And so when we add anything to faith, we take God's promises and we render them powerless. We render God's promises useless. This is so important in sanctification as well. So many Christians get derailed here. They think we're justified by faith and then they think they're sanctified and they have victory over temptation and they live the Christian life in their own power and in their own deeds and they come up with all these lists of rules that they've got to keep and they put themselves under a yoke of bondage which they couldn't keep to be saved and now they think these things are going to bring righteousness in their life. Miles Stanford wrote this, Since the promise is that we are complete in Christ 
That is the promise to you and I. We are complete in Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Jesus, and you are complete in Him. You can't add to completeness, can you? You can't fill a cup more than to the top. And that's what we try to do when we try to work our salvation out in our own strength and our own power. Now, I know we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but the rest of that verse says, for it is God who works in you both to fear and to do good works. It's not us. And so what is Paul teaching here? And what is, let me finish this quote by Miles Stanford. He goes on to say that we are complete in Christ. It will not do to try to add what is already finished. Now, it is a matter of walking by faith in what he has promised, receiving by faith, and appropriating by faith who we actually are in Christ and the abundant source that is within, which is the Holy Spirit. So when we try to add anything to God's promises, we make all of God's promises nil and void. Now, why is the reason? Why, why, why is that so? Well, Paul, being a brilliant man and filled with the Holy Spirit, wrote in 15, why? why? Because the law, all it can do is bring about wrath. When you set yourself up that I'm going to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I am going to have 30 minutes of devotion, and then I'm going to pray for an hour, and I'm going to witness to 10 people today. All you've done is set yourself up for failure. Because you can't do it. And if you did do it, you would walk around thinking you were self-righteous. The law can't do anything like that. All the law can do is bring transgression. All it can do is bring wrath. By adding legal works, we are setting ourselves up for failure. Now, this is by no means saying that we have a license to live in sin. It's by no means saying that we shouldn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. By no means am I saying that we shouldn't study to show ourselves approved. Workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the, the truth. But it only comes when you have a filling of the Holy Spirit, when you ask the Holy Spirit and you confess, in my strength, Lord, today, I cannot do this. In my own power, Lord, I don't even want to read my Bible today. God, change my heart. Renew me. Renew my salvation. And God answers those kinds of prayers. So Paul is saying that when we add law, we simply set, our, set ourselves up for failure. There is no transgression where there is no law. Now, this is... Kind of a parenthetical. It, it, Paul's really not going to go into de deep detail on what that means. Um, it, it almost sounds like he's saying, well, you know, I can just do whatever I want. Antinomianism. No laws at all. I don't put any laws on, down. I don't have any expectations. I'll never sin. That's not what Paul is implying here. He's alluding to something that he's going to teach in greater detail in chapter 5. All right? So I'm not going to say a lot about that, that phrase. But here's the idea. The purpose of the law is not for achieving righteousness. And the purpose of the law is not for Christian living. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is for Christian living. If we live in the Spirit, Paul said in the Galatians, let us also walk in the Spirit. For the flesh and the Spirit are contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, and Paul gives all those, and now he says the fruit of the Spirit is all those nine beautiful things that God will produce in you. The result is found in verse 16, the word therefore. Therefore, and this is a powerful verse, and it's, it's much deeper than what the surface looks like, okay? Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. And what is the result? So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, and not to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. If it is anything other than faith, 
We limit the scope. We limit the power of the gospel. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. It's not, it's, it's sure to everyone. This is so simple. Anybody can bow their knee and say, I believe in Jesus for my salvation. And if it's not by faith, it's not sure to anybody. You can, you don't know if you're saved or not. You can know today you're saved. I remember when they asked, um, a theologian, he was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, Francis Schaeffer. And they asked him in an interview, how are you so sure that you're going to go to heaven? And his answer was so simple. He says, because Jesus Christ's righteousness represents me, and that's what I'm trusting in. If you're trusting in anything else, you'll never have assurance. So where was I at here? Faith does not negate grace. There is a lot of teaching. You'll read a lot of books and a lot of theology that implies that if you believe, therefore that is a work. And no longer is it just pure grace. Paul, in fact, says just the opposite, the very opposite. He says, therefore, it is of faith so that it might be by grace. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you were told to climb this rope and this rope went up eternally. And you are climbing and you are climbing and you're never going to get to the top. That's the requirement of trying to get to God by your own good legal works. And then someone comes along and says, let go of the rope. You've got to trust in Jesus. And you say, no, I can't let go of the rope because that would be a work. That's ridiculous. That's in essence what you'd be When you let go of the rope, you're saying, I cannot save myself. When you let go of the rope, you're saying, I believe that the everlasting arms of God are going to catch me. And the eternal goodness of Jesus Christ is going to bring me into the very presence of God. So the Bible never teaches this, not of faith, but grace. But it does teach not of works, but by grace. Now, this may seem like a very insignificant distinction but it changes your approach to the Christian life. Faith is something we are responsible to exercise. And when we do, it never negates grace. Faith is simply a conduit. Grace is solely from God's sovereign will and goodness. It is 100% grace. Faith as a condition for justification, in no way takes away God's initiative of saving grace. Grace is 100% from God. It points us, in that, as my illustration gave, of letting go of the rope and trusting in the finished work of Christ. The second result of it being a condition necessary for righteousness is now it is certain to both Jew and Gentile. The promises that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to the world are actually benefited for a benefit that can be applied to all, but only those who believe it will receive it. The second point this morning is righteousness is conditioned on genuine faith. Abraham's faith was a genuine faith, 17 through 22. What do I mean by genuine faith? It's, it's really simple, and I probably shouldn't even use the word genuine. I should probably just limit that and say faith. But it is real faith. It's sincere faith. It's a faith that is professed from his heart. In the Jerusalem council, when they were discussing this whole issue of salvation, Peter says up, gets up and says, I believe that they will be justified by faith, and their hearts will be purified by faith, just as we were. And so it is real faith, not counterfeit, not superficial, not evervescent, that is just based on an emotion. 
So what is real faith? Faith is based, like I said, on revelation. That's what I mean by genuine faith. Genuine faith has to have truth that we are trusting in. Maybe that's a better way of saying it than genuine faith. It has to have concrete, historical, verifiable, genuine character to it. When you are believing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that is biblical, historical faith, that Jesus Christ literally died on a cross, that he rose again the third day, that that will bring about salvation. I remember talking to a young man in Ireland, and he said that he was a believer in Christ, and we begin to discuss it, and I asked him about the resurrection. He says, oh, no, no, I don't believe any of that. He says, my, my priest told me that, that, that salvation or, or that, that, that the resurrection of Jesus is, is allegory, an allegory. And it's an allegory of, of that if we will just simply trust something that's spiritual bigger than us, we can all have sort of a resurrection life that we live in. And I, I, I asked him this question. I said, so what if I told you I was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to God except through me? And I expect you to, to trust that. Would you believe that? And he says, no. I says, what if I told you destroy this temple? Destroy my body. And in three days you go to the grave and the casket's empty. Now, is that something that you can trust and believe that I am the Savior of the world? And I said, now, let me ask you one more question. I said, if that resurrection wasn't literal, I says, who can make the same claim? Everybody can. Everybody. That's why genuine faith has to be based on the character and the truthfulness of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him... So God confesses this in his own presence, that God is going to verify it with his own character by two immutable things which God cannot lie, it says in the book of Hebrews, so that you and I can have strong consolation when we run to him. We have a refuge for our soul. It's God who gives this promise to Abraham in the presence of himself, and he swears by himself. Now look at the character of God. Who is our God that we're believing in? Our God is one who gives life to the dead. That is the God that we're to believe in. We're to believe in a God who gives life to the dead. We are to believe in a God who calls things that aren't even existence as though they do exist. Now, that must have been mind-blowing for Thomas when he wasn't there for the resurrection appearance the first time. And he comes and Jesus says to Thomas, don't be faithless but be believing. And he verified it. He gave him proof. He gave him evidence. He says, Thomas, come and put your hands in my nails. Put your hand in the side. And what did Thomas confess? He says, you are my Lord and you are my God. So that's the character of God. Things that don't even exist. Things that are dead, he raises them to life. The content of what we believe in. Our faith in him. He raised Jesus from the dead. We are not putting our faith in a theological idea, we are not putting our, our faith in a feeling or an emotion, but a God who works in real history. Biblical faith has a content that rests on accurate, verifiable, historical evidence. Now, it's not a cognizant. You never bring somebody to Christ simply on apologetics. Apologetics are wonderful. They have its place. But there must be an understanding that I need Jesus Christ as my Savior. But it's always based on real truth. 
Real facts. We are not justified by simply adding Jesus on to our other baggage. The the completeness of Jesus' work. Look at the the completeness of of His work. I'm sorry. I'm I'm running ahead of myself. Okay. (laughs) It is God who gives life to the dead. So authentic faith must be in response, but the one who gives life. God calls things that don't exist as if they do. So it had absolutely nothing to do with Abraham, did it? Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 90. So he's trusting in this one who calls this child Isaac, who's not even in existence, as if he, he was already there. So God, in, in, in some ways, Abraham had to become a fool, didn't he? In order to be really wise. Abraham, Abraham had to confess that he was weak in order for him to really be strong. It's almost counterintuitive. I've got to trust, because mankind is so used to trusting in what he does. You ask the average person if, who, who doesn't know the gospel if they're going to go to heaven, and their response is, I'm hoping that my good works are going to outweigh my bad works, because that is just the way we think. It seems to be so counterintuitive to say, I can do absolutely nothing. And that's exactly where Abraham was, unable to do anything to bring an heir into the world. It had to be faith in the one who was making the promise, the one who was giving the revelation. That's about all that the law can do. Same thing that Abraham saw. So genuine faith, it doesn't take into account our limitations. Verse 19, And so, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he'd promised, he was also able to perform. So, biblical saving faith. Now, I probably should reword this too. (laughs) Genuine faith, though, doesn't take into account our limitations. I love listening to Unshackled. I got this little app on my phone But there are so many people that come so close to salvation and they think that God cannot possibly forgive them because their past is so bad. But faith doesn't take into account all of our limitations to reach God in our own efforts. In fact, it has absolutely nothing to do with it. That's what Jesus was bringing the woman at the well to that point. That's what He was bringing her through that process. If you knew who I was, I will give you living water and you will never thirst. And she says, well, give me that water. She didn't understand what Jesus had to offer, so he says, go get your husband. What did she say? She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus was very gentle. He says, yeah, what you said is true. You've had five guys, and the ones who's living with now is not. And then she finally says, well, you know what? Maybe you're, maybe you're a prophet. And she tries to derail the conversation again. She says, our ancestors worship on the mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. All, she was, all these limitations, why she couldn't have salvation, why she couldn't have this living water. And Jesus told her the time is coming and now is that neither in the mountains nor in Jerusalem will worship the Father for the Father is seeking people to worship Him who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And then she says one more detour. She says, well, I know when Messiah is coming. <laughs> I'm going to get this guy finally off my back. When Messiah comes, He's going to tell us all things. And Jesus simply says, I am He. That's what she needs to trust in. Jesus alone. I am He. And if you will trust that, you will have living waters and you will never thirst again. That's what I mean when I said here, Abraham didn't consider all the limitations that were going to bring about this promise to God. 
The word consider, it's a powerful, it's a Greek word, well, all Greek words translated into English, duh. <laughs> but it's a compound word. It means according to knowledge, literally. But it's a great translation that says to consider, because we know what it means to consider something, doesn't it? We know it means to sit down. We know it means to examine it. We know to think it through. And you think about the things that hinder you from faith. It's when you start considering your own problems and think, God, these are too surmountable. It's when I start to examine all the things that I have to do to do something, and God, it looks like it's impossible. But God is not limited by those things. And Abraham did not do that. He didn't consider all the things that he couldn't do. He considered what God was able to do. Genuine faith is being convinced and it's trusting. That's what faith is. It's trusting. It's relying on someone else other than yourself. And that's what it says about Abraham. He did not waver the, faith, the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced, fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Now, that does not mean that Abraham ever struggled after Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Abraham walked out and he looked at the stars that night. And God said, this is what your descendants are going to look like. God didn't say, Abraham, look at the stars and never make a mistake after this. And then you'll be righteous. <laughs> he didn't say that. But he said, this is accounted to you for righteousness. Because we get to chapter 16 and Abraham tries to make a deal with God and says, let Eliezer be the heir. God says, no. So we get to chapter 17, and God tries to go through Hagar. I'm sorry, the end of chapter 16. So we can, I got that backwards. 16 was Hagar, 17 was Eliezer. Because God says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael either. So it doesn't mean that Abraham was expected to live a life of perfection before God because that again would negate the promise, wouldn't it? So Abraham had that kind of faith. He was fully convinced at that moment that God, if you said it, that is enough and I trust it and I believe it. If the Bible has said that Jesus Christ has finished your righteousness for you, if you will simply trust that. That's what it means to be fully convinced. It means to rely on. It means to trust in. Now, that doesn't mean that genuine faith will not grow. Genuine faith will be strengthened. Now, how did Abraham's faith get stronger? It tells us right here. He didn't waver through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith. And look at the word giving. It's a participle, and it's modifying strengthened by faith. You are strengthened in faith by giving glory to God. I will testify, and I bet you all of you can do the same thing today, that when you change from grumbling and complaining and you start glorifying God, God strengthens your faith. You get a bill and you can't pay for it. You know what you should do? Don't consider your own wallet. Don't consider your bank account. Consider the one who's going to provide for you, and you start praising and giving thanks to God, and you will watch your faith strengthen and grow. That's what Abraham did, and that's written for us as well. It grows by giving glory to God. Abraham did what those in chapter 1 whose God's wrath is poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, he did just the opposite. Abraham did not suppress the truth when light was given to him. Abraham saw the invisible attributes of God, his eternality, his power, his Godhead, that he was not like man. He was thankful. He esteemed his own wisdom to be foolish. I don't have a child 
I can't bear children. My wife's womb is barren. But he counted his own wisdom as foolishness. He did not bring down God to man's level. He did not exchange the truth of God for a lie. He worshiped the creator instead of creation, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the faith that Abraham had. Now, the same righteousness that was imputed to Abraham is imputed to us. And it's based totally on the finished work of Jesus. The content of our faith. Let's look at verses 23 through 25, and we're almost closed here. Now, it was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him. It was written for us also. It shall be imputed to us. Now look at this pronoun because it's going to tell who it will be imputed to. Who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Period. Nothing's added to that, is there? So we are putting our faith not in a theological idea, but a God who works in history, who literally raised Christ from the dead. Biblical faith has to have divine revelation to be genuine, to be real. The content rests on the reliability of God's truthfulness to you and I. The second thing that righteousness is imputed for us is we believe the content, but we also must trust and believe in the finished work of Christ, that Christ paid it all. This is so different. It's only Christianity that teaches this. It is the finished work of Jesus that saves you. It's not even your faith in some ways. Faith, like I said, is simply the conduit. Because a lot of people have faith. But it's the faith in what Jesus did. It's his death that saves you. You are not merited or achieving anything by believing. You are simply believing in what somebody else already has accomplished for you. He was raised for our justification and he was condemned or delivered up for, I said that backwards, for our offenses. So what do I need to believe? I need to believe that Jesus Christ's death was a substitution for me. That the wages of sin is death. That's what I owe and that's what I need to pay. I need to believe that Jesus' death was a substitute for me. That he paid my debt. You have been bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. That's why Jesus was delivered up for my offense. That's the content of what Jesus did. The second thing, I've got to believe that he was raised from the dead in order that righteousness might be put to my account. The resurrection, why is that so important? The resurrection is the verification that God gave to you and I that his death was sufficient. We're told in the beginning of this book of Romans that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God. How? How did God vindicate him? How did he pronounce him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings? By the resurrection from the dead. It has been verified. God accepts that payment, Jesus is alive. Death could not hold him. The grave has no sting. Father, today, God, I thank you. I thank you that you've made it explicit, and I thank you that you've made it simple. God, that doesn't mean that it's easy. But God, today, as a church body, 
We want to confess, Lord. We want to affirm to you, Lord, that God, that you are a God who does things against all hope when there is no hope. God, as a church and as a church family and as individuals today, God, we want to say before you that we are going to not consider our limitations, but we're going to consider who you are. God, we're going to look at your character of your promises. We're not going to stagger at unbelief for them, God. We are going to count you faithful. God, I think of what it said about Sarah. Sarah, Sarah laughed. And then a year later, she had Isaac. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, that Sarah... Sarah moved from laughing to believing because she counted the one faithful who had made the promise. God, I pray today that our Christian life, God, that we will base our Christian life on the promises. God, I pray that we won't put ourselves back under law and set ourselves up only to fail. I pray today, God, that we will walk by faith, that we will be alive by faith. God, that our faith will just consume us, Lord. Father, I I pray today that, God, we will be quick, quick to acknowledge our sin in front of you. God, God, that we will get back on the track quickly, Lord. Father, if there's anyone today who's happened to come into this service and is asking that question, how can I be right with God? God, I pray today that they would understand that they can be right with God because Jesus died for every, every offense that they've ever committed. God, I pray that today that they will understand the historical resurrection was a real event. In the exact same way that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, they can be raised too to walk in a new life. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name.